Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have an amazing, fascinating guest with me today. I really have a legend, a pioneer in the field of parapsychology and um, and, and uh, psi research. Um, I have with me Lloyd Arbach. Um, he has a master's of science. He, he has over 42 years of experience in the field of parapsychology with a particular focus on education, field investigations, and media portrayals of the paranormal. He's the director of the Office of Paranormal Investigations, president of the Forever Family Foundation, and vice president of the board of directors at the Rhine Research Center. He is one of the main instructors of online parapsychology courses at the Rhine Education Center and is an adjunct professor at Atlantic University. And he has taught numerous graduate courses at JFK University. He's a member of the advisory board of Winbridge Research Center. He holds a master of science degree, a parapsychology degree of JFK University. Lloyd has been the author, he is the author of, co-author of nine paranormal topic books for the general public, including Psychic Dreaming, Mind Over Matter, ESP Wars, East and West, and the classic ESP Hauntings of Poltergeist, a parapsychologist's handbook. He's the first co-author in a paranormal mystery series, Near Death, A Rainy Day Investigation, its second novel is due out mid-year. He has a, a parallel career as a mentalist and a psychic entertainer a past president of the International Psychic Entertainers Association. He performs professionally at Paranormal. He's had appearance on thousands of rating shows. I found out about him from the Art Bell Show. He's been on New Thinking Go Out with Jeffrey Mishlove, Oprah, Unexplained History's Greatest Mysteries, Larry King Live. He's been even on SportsCenter talking about the paranormal. It's amazing. I want to give him a big warm welcome to the show. Lloyd, thank you for coming on my show. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate you doing this. Like I said, I found out about you on the Art Art Bell show. I'm a big Art Bell fan. Um, let me ask you this. What was it like? Because you, you were a frequent guest of Arts. I mean, from what I remember, he had you on Dark Matter, and then you were on Midnight in the Desert. So that had to be a real honor, right? I, I, I was on a couple of his shows. I actually did um, his show, you know, when it was just the Art Bell show uh, a number of times. But every single time that I did it, it there was a guest host. So... Yeah, uh, we for that last last appearance that um, Art did with me, you know, that that I had on his show. Actually, we had a long conversation in the afternoon because uh, he almost rescheduled me due to being given some bad information uh, about a possible uh, comment by the Pope about extraterrestrials. And it was it was just absolutely fake information that he you know, that I was able to dig into and find was was not true. So. Yeah. Well, I, that makes me think of something. This wasn't on my list of questions, but like, what are your thoughts on all the news of disclosure? I mean, you ha I mean, you have to have an opinion on this with 40 years in the field. Like, and what are your thoughts on what they might be? Well, first of all, parapsychology is not UFOs. We don't deal with UFOs at all. Uh, it's that is a separate area altogether. I do have um, a little background on that, just mainly from college, because I went to, J to Northwestern University and was in an astronomy major the first year, so under J.L. and Hynek, and I got to know him pretty well, and even volunteered at the Center for UFO Studies. Uh, I mean, I, there's no way to know what they are. I mean, first of all, there may be more than one thing. This is the thing that we have to keep in mind. That's something that Hynek talked about. He actually had uh, discussed, even with, with, a, with the students, that he thought that some of the UFOs might be not even nuts and bolts hardware, but some of them absolutely seemed to be. And then, of course, we have a lot of mistaken aircraft. Um, we've had experimental aircraft from the U.S. government and other governments and mistaken for UFOs. But then there's this core thing, especially with the few good um, close encounters of the third kind kind of experiences that 
you know, we, we don't know, you couldn't, there's no way to know if they're alien, you know, extraterrestrials or from people have put out all sorts of theories. There are other dimensionals, they're from the future, they're from a distant past, who knows what they are. We but just what, know that there's something flying around. Uh, yeah. And the Pentagon has known that. Yeah, but what I was going to say, where it goes into your territory, the parapsychology, and I think Doc Belay talked about this, and like I said, I'll get to the regular questions, but just because you've been a luminary in the field for so long, I just want to pick pick your mind about this, but like the where it goes into your territory is they could possibly be constructs of our mind. Have you thought of well, that? And right, is that so that's, that's the idea of psychic projections, and that is something that Heineck talked about, and Jacques Belay has talked about that as well. Um, in when we, you know, going over to the whole idea of apparitions of ghosts, of hauntings and things like that, there is a tradition in some parts of the world in various cultures called the thought form. In Tibet, it's, it's called the tulpa, that if you put enough belief into something, that there could be a projection that other people might pick up on. And in fact, one of my, my very first case here in Northern California, when I was a student at JFK, was um, a family that was having poltergeist activity, so physical activity, which turned out to be the mother, not the teenage daughter. And part of her process psychologically behind all of this was related to a construct that she had created to blame her son. Her, her daughter was living in, her, in the house all the time. The twin son was in juvie quite a bit. Um, and she was blaming all his, his behavior on this entity that she had kind of conjured up of a, a guy in black armor, like a black knight, which there's never been a black knight in Northern California. At least, you know, not in black armor and the whole, but that's a medieval, even Arthurian thing. Uh, and she had somehow transmitted that to her daughter and to one of the other daughters also. So that was definitely a thought projection of sorts. But how was it appearing to them? Was it appearing like a shadow person or was it appearing like um, as a ghost or like? And, and uh, it, well, all, right, all right. So there's a lot of bad information out there. Um, when you look at the literature, parapsychology and psychical research, which goes back 140 years. You know, the ghost hunters on TV make it seem like this started in the 90s. No, it started, and I'm really not a pioneer. I am a legacy of what came before me, certainly. Um, so really what we're talking about is that people get different mental images of apparitions. They mostly look human. They don't always look like, um, they don't always look solid down to their feet. Sometimes the, the apparition cuts off at the knees. Uh, there's a reason for that, we think, psychologically. Sometimes people will get different information. So you can have a single apparition case where there's two people seeing the apparition. One person's hearing the apparition's voice. Another person's smelling perfume or cologne uh, of the, you know, what that would represent for the apparition, male or female. And somebody else might be feeling a presence. And then there's other people in the family might feel, pick up nothing. And it's because we get, a, think of it as we get a signal from this consciousness that is an apparition that gets into our heads, becomes parts of our perception. So it looks like it's out there, but in fact, it's really in here. And different people process the information differently. In fact, sometimes you can have the shadow figure and an apparition in the same spot because the person getting the shadow figure isn't fully processing the information as visual. They're just getting a partial image. It's fuzzy, it's shadowy, that kind of thing. So the same could be the case with these thought projections too. That, that's so interesting. Now, well, what, what about a, like a, a real, like, I know you've had encounters with what we would call real ghosts, or can you talk about yeah. if you have, like, and would you, I mean, would you say like, 
I know you've talked to Dr. Jeffrey Mitchell. Would you say that consciousness continues on after death? I absolutely would. I, you know, I, I was undecided when I first got into the field, but looking at the evidence, um, the commonalities around the world, across cultural stuff, looking at the, the tens of thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of experiences people have had, some of which have been fully investigated, some of which provide really good information just from an apparitional perspective. But the idea of survival of consciousness is not just ghosts. It's also the children who remember previous lives. It is supported by some of the near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. It's supported by other kinds of mediumistic experiences. And I work with mediums, uh, evidential mediums every so often through the Forever Family Foundation. So there's definitely a good support for that. The question, and the reason why there's a problem in science with this question, and why so many people don't even wanna look at it is because science is based on rational empiricism, materialism. Materialists, from a materialist perspective, we're just meat puppets, basically, that's it. So parapsychology looks at phenomena of the mind or consciousness and goes beyond, but even within my field, not everybody buys into survival of consciousness. Yeah. Um, well, I, what I was thinking was, it, it to me, like you saying that, it holds a lot of weight. Like I've had Dr. Mishlove on my show, and I've had people from the Monroe Institute on my show. Like I've, I've went into this topic very deeply. Like in, in all the areas you just said, like reincarnation, past lives, um, you know, those uh, near death experiences, and like I, I want to believe that something exists after you know, we, we pass on, but like, I think it holds a lot of weight when you say it, because I know you're very evidence-based. Am I right about that? I am, um, you know, and actually, because I teach courses in this, I have to teach the other side of things too. And the debate in parapsychology is whether or not uh, we're fooling ourselves, you know, not really consciously fooling ourselves, but basically we're getting information from all sorts of sources that allow us to create the idea of a ghost in our head and even a conversation. There's some uh, that's called often called super psi or super ESP because we don't know the upper limits of ESP, but honestly, we kind of do. <laughs> so um, at least we know certain things about ESP, but what it comes down to is how you approach the evidence is and what you conclude or what your conclusions might be is how open are you to other ideas about consciousness itself? And let's face it, in science across the boards, there is no definition for consciousness that everybody agrees on. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like it just seems like it's it's it. it, it, it I'm, I'm stumbling over my words. It seems like we have our brain, right? But then there's consciousness that comes from somewhere. It's like in a unified field, and it just exists. And but we don't. I mean, and we don't know what the soul exactly the soul is in the spirit. Like we can try to define the soul, but we can't punch it. We can't touch it. We can't feel it, but we feel like it's like, I feel like I have a soul. I don't know how I can explain yeah. that. It just feels like it's no, there. Does I understand. That sound yeah. yeah. You know, and the thing is that there are other alternatives besides the idea that consciousness exists out here you know, and comes in, you know, there's a, a concept that our consciousness is actually formed as we develop as human beings, but it continues to exist because whatever comes from the brain, the brain spawns something, a quantum field, an energy field, a particle field, something that physics hasn't really detected yet, uh, that that might coherently exist after death. The thing is, the cases that I deal with, the ghost cases I deal with, are cases of people who have not 
based on conversation with them, whether it's mediums or witnesses, they haven't gone on to whatever the next state of existence is. So you might say they haven't gone to the other side. Uh, whereas mediums typically talk to people on the other side who are not still here physically in the, uh, on earth. So we don't know exactly what that afterlife would be like. Um, I suspect it's very different than anything we can imagine, which is why it always sounds like, sounds familiar because there's no way somebody could describe something that is unfamiliar to us because there are no words or concepts for that. Isn't it weird that like when people have a near death experience, they'll feel like they have a body, like they don't, not that they have a body, like they have a meat suit, but they feel like when they're out of their body, they'll feel like they can't, they, they can't really see it, but they feel like a part yeah. of their, there's, there's body still there. Like, they, well, that, they that's your identity, it. but that's your, that, I mean, this is why ghosts are seen with clothing on because that, that concept they present, uh, they don't physically have a body anymore, but they're seen like they have a body and they're seen with like a bot with a body with clothing on and they're seen looking younger or healthier than they were when they died. So there's a self-concept. We all have a concept, a picture in our heads of ourselves and a sense of ourselves. I mean, I am not as old in my head. I am not as old as I am. And I may even have a little bit more hair. My, my beard's not as, not as light. So I, I, my feeling is if I ever get seen as a ghost, I'm gonna look like I'm 30. I have a dark beard and I have more hair. So <laughs> but, uh, to, but that's that's how do you think that's something that our consciousness projects or remembers that like like because it, like, it's our you know the original term for consciousness was human personality that's what the psychical researchers called it and there's a book you can get for free uh it's actually two volumes you can also get it uh some some folks have actually reprinted it it's out of print way out of print called human personality and survival of bodily death that's from the late 1800s. It's on the Internet Archive. That's archive.org for free. And it, they refer to human personality because ghosts and the folks that are talked to by mediums continue to have the same personality that they did when they were alive. So the memories, at least for a while, seem to keep intact. And because memories keeping intact behavior and personality keeps intact. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about like, like what, what are some of your best ghost cases? Like, I mean, you don't have to tell the, I mean, like if you don't mind sharing a story, like something yeah, that really sure. had proof, like, you know, I'd love to hear the proof. You know, cause I'm, well, I'm, well, I'm about evidence too. I mean, I know I have yeah. some outlandish guests on my show, but cause I like to give everybody a voice, but um, also I'm like you, I'm very evidence-based, like, or at least when I can get real evidence, like I'd love to hear about it because it's 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 what I want to know. I want to know what, what happens when we pass on. So I'd love to hear these stories. Well, again, the ghost cases, there are people who passed on and they're here. So um, one of my best cases, actually, it's written up in Leslie Keene's book, Surviving Death. I wrote a whole chapter about it. And it was a case we had uh, back when we had the JFK parapsychology program. The family was not afraid of the ghost. In fact, what for a year and a half was that their 12 year old son had finally revealed that he was communicating with this ghost every week. And then when the mother said, question him, what ghost, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, the ghost that you dad, grandma are seeing, but aren't talking about. So they had all been seeing this woman's ghost from about the first couple of days they moved into the house uh, on a fairly regular basis, maybe once a week, uh, the grandmother only when she visited, but the kids started talking to her and had communication with her on a daily basis, at least that's what he claimed. So this is a pretty interesting case, because, mainly because they were, there was no fear whatsoever. This is the previous owner of the house. And just to kind of bring it all together, uh, when we went down there was I had a couple of investigators with me and we ended up um, hearing a lot of 
family stories being told to us by the by supposedly by the ghost through the boy he was kind of acting as the medium or intermediary at that point and that there was only one living we knew that there was only one living relative for this woman and in fact the the, the people who bought the house the couple who bought the house the kids parents she, the mother was a lawyer and she was trying very hard to get in touch with this guy um when she especially after she found out that her son was seeing the ghost and apparently was a cousin but she bought that they bought the house through an attorney because the relative was in independent living and eventually in assisted living and didn't want to be bothered by by the sale and everything i was given enough information to figure out where he was and he confirmed he verified all the family stories he was willing to talk to me because his cousin's still around that's crazy but He's, he was 92, so he thought this was a good thing. Um, so he confirmed all the stories. And then the thing that was most amazing to me in many respects, that happened after we were there. But while we were there, we had a conversation with the boy and the ghost, apparently, and the, and the mother was there, the grandmother was there. And I was ask, asking questions about what happened when you died and what was, what was you know, what's your, how come the kid is seeing you at, with different clothing every day and sometimes at different ages? She was seen as different ages, but he'd still communicate with her. And so there, and what do you think you are in terms of what is consciousness for you? So I was getting some really interesting stuff that this kid could not have come up with as a 12 year old. And there was really not any easy to access information in 1985, no internet for this. Yeah. Um, and then, then I said, are there any questions for us? And one of the, one of the really unique things was she had a question for each one of us that related to our conversation in the in the car drive from the university to their house in Livermore that had nothing to do with ghosts, wow. nothing to do with the paranormal. It was just mundane stuff we were talking about. And it was a very pointed, specific question. And the only way this, this kid could have known to ask those questions was either they bug my car, which is highly unlikely since there was no motive, nothing happened in terms of publicity, no motivation at all, or the kid was incredibly psychic. I mean, he was psychic because he was talking to the ghost, but he would have had to pick up things that were totally irrelevant to anything on our minds at that point. And that coupled with the information, the family stuff that was verified by this relative. In fact, I would sometimes start a story and he would finish it. That absolutely convinced me. And that was the convincer for me that apparitions or ghosts are real. And now what, what did he say, if you don't mind me asking about, like when you asked him like, what happens when you die in the afterlife? Did he have like poignant answers for that? No question, no questions about the, no, uh, no response about the afterlife because she hadn't been there yet. So that was one thing. So she'd only been here in a hospital. And when she died, she reviewed her life. She thought about, um, she didn't know if there was a heaven or hell because she wasn't religious. So she didn't have a particular belief in that. So she figured why take a chance and wanted to just go home. Uh, so she went to the house. Uh, the house was, was empty for about a year and a half before they, they were able to move in. And she was happy in the house. She figured that she'd stick around and see what she, whether she liked the new people coming in or not, which apparently she did. And otherwise, she'd figure out what to do next. Um, she, she felt she was, because I asked about how he's seeing her, but we're not. And the response was that she, as far as she knew, she was like a ball of energy. And it was kind of interesting because it was like a ball of energy, like those aliens on Star Trek. So in the, the original series, there were the Organians and other entities that were, were basically energy, consciousness alone, that projected an image of being human or humanoid to the Enterprise folks. So she was talking about that. And 
she talked about projecting herself, thinking herself with different clothing on. All of that stuff was beyond. There was you. It would have been hard for this kid to even come up with that uh, from any literature on parapsychology because it really wasn't cohesively written down at that time. At least not in ex accessible things. That's amazing. Um, I was thinking, like, what if we die? You know, like, what if I was just laid down and then I would wake up and I'd be dead? But then it just seems like it's this this life, but just in another form. Like, like we wake up and everything's the same. Do you think that might be possible, or do you think there's a point where we do go to like a, another dimension, which could be I'm not saying heaven or hell because I'm not religious, but like some other place where we would continue our consciousness quest or I, I do think that that is the case because we don't have, you know, when it comes right down to it, the majority of what are called ghosts cases that are cited are not actual conscious entities. They're imprints in the environment. Um, so there's very few actual apparitions around that uh, compared to the number of people who've died that it's just so small. For whatever reason, they're here. They're still they're sticking around. In this case of this woman, she would she didn't want to go or she was afraid to go. She didn't know what was next. So it was kind of important for that. Um, I think that, you know, we've, we've, through the mediums I've worked with sometimes, uh, people have gone, you know, there's this whole, uh, stereotype, go to the light, you, you know, the light will take care of you. Well, some people are afraid of the light. They don't know what's on the other side of the light, but it really boils down to they're holding themselves here. There's no curse that holds them there. There's nothing that keeps an apparition in a single place except their own psychology. So once they let go, um, they move on to wherever it is. And the only information we have about what's next comes from evidential mediums that talk to people supposedly on the other side. And the interesting thing that I've heard from some of the forever family mediums and a couple of others, somebody I worked with extensively uh, for a number of years, Annette Martin, was that it literally is not in a form that we, we can relate to. So whatever that dimension or other existence is, higher plane, other dimension, whatever you want to call it, it's, they're not physical human beings anymore. So it's a very different world. And it could be, it could be that they think of themselves as, as in physical form. It could be something else. But it goes back to this thing in science fiction and philosophy that it's probably more different than we can imagine because we yeah. have no experience of it. And it it's always has to be a mystery. Like no no one can, if you think about the afterlife, I mean, I'm just thinking about this, like nobody can ever get a good bite on like what exactly is going on there. I mean, I know there's Rich Martini. He's wrote, written books called, you know, on the flip side. And his, he has like this flip books, flip side series, you know, where he's talked to people and they've went to, they said they go to the school, like in between lives. And what's weird right. is I had a, I did a past life regression on my channel. I let someone put me in a trance. And uh, I I felt like in between lives, I went to that school. I can't tell you if my past life regression was real. I feel 50-50 on it. But I did go to some like after. And when I experienced the death part and the past life regression, my soul left my body. Then I soon after I was in this like learning place. You know what I mean? And then I met like a spirit guy. It was very, very weird. But, well, um, there, you know, there there are some variations across cultures all over the world and and, then, and religions, of course, as well. Um, and it really, one of the mediums I talking to someone, it was one of our events and she was, she, somebody in the audience had, uh, in the group had asked um, the, I think it was the woman's father um, who was coming through to this one woman. She asked, well, you know, what's the afterlife like? And 
the medium basically said, you know, <clears throat> he's saying pretty much that whatever he says, the description he gives me, the medium, is filtered through my brain and what I know and what I'm able to talk to you about. So I can't even, so he can't even describe what it's actually like. It's, he can only describe it in ways we can understand, metaphors. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like if it's, you know, now I wanted to switch the subject to, um, to the to psychokinesis. Um, in parapsychology, you study consciousness and psi phenomenon, but you also study extra extrasensory perception and psychokinesis. Can you talk well, about, yeah. yeah, yeah ESP, ESP and PK are consciousness. Uh, are forms of uh, activity of consciousness. Yeah, can you talk about your studies in those and like what, what kind of results you've had? I know you've talked about um, Martin Caden and I've learned about Ted Owens like um, with Jeffrey Mishlove. Like, right, what, right, can, right. can you get, like, tell the audience about your adventure, well, not adventure, but your experience in psychokinesis? Um, well, you know, PK psychokinesis is uh, part and parcel of Kind of the three pillars of parapsychology we do we look at esp which is information based pk which is activity based action based and survival of consciousness and they all interrelate uh in many respects uh, in the in the laboratory most pk studies are done with what are called micro pk meaning we can't see the effect so it's done with computers with random number generators and we have a huge amount of data that shows that human beings are capable of affecting devices um, it's sometimes called human machine interactions the thing that most people hear about, think about when they hear about PK, I mean, there's the new version of Firestarter just started yesterday in the theaters, pyrokinesis, you know, Stephen King has kind of fixed our minds on teenage girls being um, the poltergeist agents, thanks to the, the book and the movie Carrie originally. And poltergeist activity is kind of the ultimate expression of psychokinesis, where the unconscious mind kind of blows up and creates uh, a telekinetic temper tantrum. It's not anything like in the movies. Um, it, it's not as explosive. It's not as bad. I mean, it breaks things or it fixes things sometimes that we have for the activity. But it's us, the living, that are actually doing this in general. There are some cases with apparitions doing PK, but it's mostly living people. So over the years, um, I've had a couple of experiences of PK myself uh, early on once I got into the field. And then I did work with... Um, a couple of people who could do, first of all, we had the spoon bending activity that was done even when I was a student at JFK University, metal bending. And there's a lot of fraud and it, people who can do really good fraud for metal bending, for spoon bending. I mean, I can do it a little bit too, um, but I know some of the best metal bender performers in the Psychic Entertainers Association that are in the world. But we've run, um, over the years, run these spoon bending parties, PK parties, which gets people into a light altered state and really interesting things happen. And yes, we do have people not being aware that they're putting a lot of strength or pressure on the spoons or on the, the whatever metal that we're using. But we also have some extremely unusual things happening, including um, brittle metal. So very cheap spoons that if you actually tried to even slowly bend it, it would snap being literally just twisted into spirals and other things we've seen hacksaw blades tied into knots, uh, spoons bending, just flopping over on their own. So PK does get into us, but part of the whole process, and I'll get into Caden here in a second, is getting out of your own way. Uh, a psychologist, parapsychologist named Kenneth Batchelor identified that, especially with psychokinesis, our society makes us freak out if we see anything moving on its own or come up with a different, different explanation. 
That's called witness inhibition. We don't want to accept that this is really happening the way that it really is happening. Then there's ownership resistance. Okay, it's moving, but I'm not doing it because, hey, that would be really scary if this was happening if it was me. And the spoon bending parties are a part of getting past that. So when I met Martin Caden, and for those who don't know, Martin Caden was a, a prolific writer. He was a science and science fiction writer, uh, an aviation expert. He was a consultant to NASA for a number of years, uh, a kind of an unofficial consultant. He wrote a book called Cyborg, which became the $6 million man and actually had a hand in creating the bionic woman as well. He was a technical advisor on the, ser the original series, really, uh, and a real adventurer type kind of guy. Um, when I met him, he had actually known my father like 30 years before. My dad actually worked for NBC and was part of the coverage for Mercury and Gemini for the space shots. So my dad had met him back then and he knew a couple other people. Like we had mutual friends or uh, within the, the media because of that. And he, and I had no idea when I met him that he was going to state to a press conference at a, at a conference we were at that he could move things with his mind. He actually could do PK. And then he did it that night under uh, really difficult conditions. So I ended up starting to visit him in Florida and work with him under very controlled conditions and finding number one, that he was able to, he had his own mental limitations on what he could do. Uh, he had learned to do this after a challenge from another science fiction science writer who felt that he was stubborn enough to be able to do it. Marty just kind of took it on himself. Uh, and he could teach it to other people. In fact, we did a couple workshops together and I've taught other people to do things, but it's always interesting. You get somebody to move something and they freak out, you know, about half the people just kind of back up and look at it and then they can't do it again. So it's that ownership resistance, not wanting to know that I did it. So That's we, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say that we're probably a lot, a lot more capable of doing PK, but for whatever reason, uh, from a cultural or, or human psychology perspective, we are just too afraid of doing it. But it also yeah. you know, it includes psychic healing. Psychic healing is psychokinesis too. Yeah, I, I wanted to tell you, I had this um, remote viewer on my show. His name's Buddy Bolton. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's in your field, but he's like, he's a he really big into psi research. But so like, what he does is he's had effects on random number generators. He's bent spoons. Um, what he did on my podcast, I thought this was so interesting. On his phone, he has this something he called Muse technology, where it shows your theta, gamma, uh, you know, your brainwave. Okay. And he, he, he was like, look, he's like, he showed the phone on the screen on the podcast. He was like, I'm going to show you. He's like, I'm going to raise my brain waves. I'm going to stop talking and you'll see my brain waves go up. Well, the brain waves were like 60 or 70, maybe. And they shut like when he stopped talking and he showed the screen on the phone, it shot up to well over a hundred. You know, the beta, gamma, and it all, he was like, and he was telling me which ones he would affect. Like, it was, a, it was amazing. Like, is that, like, um, is that kind of like a little bit of PK or is that just like, um, or what would well, you say? You know, back in the 70s, or something very popular called biofeedback, where you would get these devices that would hook up to your, your, uh, your skin conductance called galvanic skin conductance, uh, resistance rather. Uh, you do brainwave stuff and people were being taught to get themselves into alpha and theta and beta, just, just playing around with the different brain states by watching the feedback monitor, kind of like what he was talking about and giving them feedback as to how they're doing. So relaxing, meditating, thinking of different things can do that. I actually have an old Radio Shack 
uh, biofeedback monitor. In fact, uh, they were selling them back when, back in the eighties and I can make it do things. Um, that is your own mind affecting your body. And that technically is psychokinesis. That is PK. So if we want to, if we want to get into like healing other people or healing ourselves, like how would we train for this? Or like, have you had, have you had people train for this or is it a trainable thing? I haven't got, I, I'm, have not gotten into psychic healing. Um, I've worked with some or known some various researchers in this subject. It seems that one of the things about all of this is that we seem to have an aptitude for different effects or different abilities of psi. I mean, psi is the Greek letter that just covers ESP and PK and everything else. So we seem to have an aptitude for different things. So I, I know John McMonagall, who was the number one viewer for the Stargate program for the US government. And he continues to do research with, um, with Ed May, who was the program director. He's very involved with the Monroe Institute as well. And Joe got to be really, really good with remote viewing, but then he, he felt like he hit a ceiling. Like this was my aptitude. This is as good as I can possibly get. And it seems to be the case with any psychic ability that we all seem to have an aptitude. There are certain things we can learn to do psychically and other things we just can't do. And that may be genetic or something else. It could be just simply psychological. But the best psychics who have, who have talked about psychic development have mentioned that what you wanna do is try a whole bunch of different psychic tasks, find out what you're good at and focus on that. And don't try to do the thing you really wanna do if you can't do it at all to begin with. So kind of a path of least resistance. I actually oh. teach a, cor a course in, uh, in the summer in, in August for the Ryan Education Center on developing ESP, developing intuition, which covers all of this. I, I might be interested in that because what's weird is like, I, as, as, I, as, as I've been doing this podcast and the more I research and the more I meditate, I do a lot of meditation and I've been trying to have out of body experience as well. I've, I've been listening to Robert Monroe's gateway experience. And there have been a couple of times where I feel like I was getting close to having an out of body experience. And I started to see a shadow being, which was, I thought was really weird, but it made me back away from it. Cause I thought that if I would have possibly went out of body, that maybe that thing was going to come and try to take my body. I wasn't sure, but, but like it was getting to a point like where, you know, like my body with the out of body meditations, you know, I was get, getting like body vibrations and then I would get a whooshing sound in my ear. And then the one time I felt like I popped out of body, but then I came back in real quick. But then um, also, you know, the other two times, like I said, that shadow being was appearing. So I pulled away. Do you have a, a lot of experience in this out of body experience? What are your thoughts on that? Well, well, I've had a couple myself years and years ago uh, when I was working at the American Society for Psychical Research, where we were doing research on out of body experience. That was the main research um, line that was happening. Uh, Carlos Osis was doing research with a subject by the name of Alex Tanis, an amazing psychic and medium. Uh, Alex is kind of an unsung hero of our field, who, um, among other things, uh, you know, was constantly consulting with FBI, NYPD, and other police departments. I mean, there wasn't a week he was not down when he was down from Maine because he came down every other week. That they would show up at the ASPR to consult with him. So. Never talked about it. He was not well known outside the field, but he also taught parapsychology as well. And Alex could go out of body pretty much at will. So they were doing experiments looking at whether or not when he was out of his body, could he see a specific target that, that was created inside a device? You have to look through a lens to see it. 
Uh, and then also, could he affect things? There was a box of strain gauges to see if he could actually affect them. Could, it, could his out-of-body presence do that? The key thing though, from him and from, I've known other people like Keith Harari and a few others who have done, consistently been able to do out-of-body is they all felt, and Alex put this really well, if my spirit left my body, I'd be dead. So what they felt was they were sending part of themselves out. So think of it as almost, Alex would often refer to it as Alex II, like a space probe, you know, like the Enterprise sends out a space probe. And that's where their consciousness perspective would focus. But basically, it's like doing a remote camera and just beaming it back. But feeling, that includes all the physical senses as well, seeing, hearing, feeling, all of that stuff. So he never believed, uh, nor did Keith or anybody else, that anything could jump into your body because you were out. You were no differently out than if you were dreaming or sleeping. Uh, but it's just like a lucid, it's lucidity, right? It's, well, I mean, you're cl very clearly aware of what's going on because you know that your perspective is outside your body. You do know that. Um, in some instances, people can be aware of both places at the same time. That's one of my experiences was that. And that was certainly the case with Alice because he, he could narrate what Alex II was actually looking at or what, was what Alex II was doing. He didn't have to wait till he came back in to come up with that information, that particular thing. Um, so it, it's, it's not that we have to worry about that. You know, there's the old occult literature that says that there's a silver cord that connects you. There was a, one of my fellow uh, graduates at JFK did a survey of people who had out-of-body out experiences and only about 5% had a silver cord. And that's yeah. because we think that was a psychological tether that they needed to allow themselves to have that experience, but nobody else, the other 95% didn't need that. That wasn't necessary. So the That's, shadow and the shadow sorry. figure that you saw might have been just simply a cycle. You know, think of it as a uh, a construct of your potential fear. Like, what if I can't get back? I, I was thinking about that. I, mean, I think that's amazing. Like, so it, it's, it's it's pretty safe to practice is what you're saying. Yeah, we've not heard of anybody um, really having a problem. Although uh, Keith did talk about the fact that same with lucid dreaming. It's like you, you need to have regular dreams. There are people who try to have every dream be lucid. And he felt that that was not psychologically healthy. Uh, I know there are other dream experts feel the same way because it's not letting things work through. Um, just like without a body experiences, you don't want to spend your whole life out of your body. Yeah. But do you, do you think like from your experience, do you think there's this whole other astral world that we can experience? Like if you ever look into the author, Robert Bruce, like from Australia, he's, he's, a, he's he is, yeah. yeah, he was on Art Bell too. He, uh, he talked about like all these different astral places you can visit once you're out of the body. Have you had experience in this? And what are your thoughts? Um, I have not. Most of the people I've done, I've dealt with have not, but Ingo Swan did, you know, Ingo was, um, a, an amazing out-of-body traveler and also uh, the person who worked with the original remote viewers for many, many years uh, in the government projects as well. And yeah. Ingo uh, was an artist. He painted some of his out-of-body travels and he consciously went into other dimensions. Uh, he also left the earth. There's a book, which is unfortunately out of print called To Kiss Earth Goodbye by Swan, which came out, I think it was 75 or 76. And in that book, he talks about traveling out of body beyond the, the earth. And he went to Jupiter and he went to Saturn and there's descriptions of what he saw in the book and his descriptions, which were bizarre in some respects because it included rings around Jupiter and the rings of Saturn being effectively braided or interlocked. And 
we didn't know that that was the case until Voyager got there. And wow. it was confirmed. That's amazing. That's, that's so amazing. Now, when we look at like the, the ESP and the psychokinesis and stuff, like, would you say that this is what we would call chi or life force or prana? Like, because I've seen like a this anthropologist, his name's Robert Seffer. He has a video where he was talking about chi and, and he was showing like these martial arts people where it's say like my hands are here. There's buckets like eight feet away. They would use their hands and like the chi from their hands, you know, push the buckets like, further away obviously that would be a, a display of psychokinesis somewhat yes. or is that what we would call chi is that what we're using or because i know well, we have that, a soul but it, it very you know it varies from culture to culture and one of the problems is that um and i've worked with i did work with a martial artist years and years ago and saw them some really interesting demonstrations that he did uh both pk and also esp uh and it it's you know, it's called chi in one culture. It's called something, you know, prana. There's there's all sorts of terms for it in different cultures. Uh, some folks feel it's within themselves. Other folks feel it's coming from out. They have to channel it in. It just depends on the person, the culture, and the the people's belief systems. The chi and, and some martial arts can do some pretty amazing things. Um, whether they're they are actually like knocking things over by sending out a wave of energy or PK, which is not necessarily energy. I mean, we haven't figured out a good way to consistently detect what's actually going on. And in fact, it seemed every time we, when I worked with Martin Caden, we, we had um, some various scientific instruments to try to detect what was going on inside a bell jar, a sealed bell jar with one of his targets. And the object moved once with a high electrostatic field. And the next time he made it move, there was no electrostatic field. There was a high temperature shift that caused the target to spin. And the next time there was no temperature shift or electrostatic field and it still moved. And it's one reason why within our field, within parapsychology, we call PK the trickster phenomena. If there's five ways for your mind to make something move, it's gonna use all five. It's gonna use whatever's the easiest at the time. So whether the chi is there's energy going out or there's a direct connection between the mind of the martial artist and that object that causes it to, to move, there are some really wild theories or speculation. Maybe we're affecting the space in which the object is move, is exists, kind of warping space on a local level. Maybe we're doing something else. There's a, a theory which a physicist put forth. There's something called Brownian motion which is you know, taking care of a lot of what goes on in our world at the very, very you know, atomic level, molecular level. And um, think of it as dominoes. If you hit the right molecule, it's gonna knock over a bunch of others and eventually the effect gets so big that it pushes that object over. Yeah, so that's interesting. it may not take much, yeah. Yeah, and then I, when you were saying electrostatic, I was thinking about, I was listening to an old Art Bell show the other day where he interviewed Joshua P. Warren. And I said this in another podcast, like. Joshua P. Warren was saying that in in like that when he was ghost hunting, he was introducing electrostatic currents into the like into haunted atmospheres, like you know whether it was protons or neutrons, and he said that that was spiking the paranormal activity. Does this sound like normal, or does this sound like something that could be possible? Just your opinion. Well, you know, there there there's definitely a connection between the Earth's magnetic field and psychic. Uh, active psychic abilities like you know paranormal activity um introducing electrostatic fields may actually cause I, I guess it would depend on what the activity is because if, if it's a person feeling like there's a presence electrostatic fields can definitely make you feel that 
uh, with having nothing to do with the paranormal. And there are certain things you can introduce in for local low frequency sound, you'll see shadows out of the corner of your eyes. There's a, a number of different things you can do. However, you can also introduce these things. And if the people there believe or accept that this is going to increase the activity, uh, including if there's a ghost there, that could actually do it too. <laughs> uh, that belief could actually juice up the activity just because we, we have a tie between ESP, PK, all of this stuff and belief in general. Uh, so that's a part of it. The other thing is that the field could uh, make a, a haunting, an imprint, place memory, what's called a residual haunting very often, more, I guess you could, you could pump up the volume on it so people could pick it up a little bit better. That's also a possibility. That's so interesting. And then my last question for you is like, and this is a little bit off topic, but it's, it's, it's on it. It has to do with like our, our reality. Like what are your thoughts on like time slips in the Mandela effect? Like, have you ever looked into that? What do you think? What do you think? About yeah. That? I, I'm time slips. Caden, Martin Caden actually looked into time slips quite a bit. He had some documentation of a minor time slip that happened on Kwajalein Island, one of our military installations. Um, there is there is evidence that you know well first of all time does not flow exactly the same rate at the surface of the earth that it, at, uh, up at the top of mount everest for example or mount kilimanjaro gravity is not exactly the same either so when you talk about time itself the physics of time it's been proven that there is an effect on the passage of time based on velocity uh, so if you're the faster you go, the slower time is for you relative to the rest of the world. That's called time dilation. That is an absolute effect. Gravity slows down time. Intense gravity slows down time. So there's time is not a set thing other than in our own consciousness and perception. I mean, basically, and our watches. That That's what time is. So there seem to be evidence of minor and even some other time slips. Uh, Caden talked about one that he had investigated, which was reported to him by some folks at Reagan National uh, Airport. Uh, this was, would have been back in the 70s, where a plane, a, a jet was coming in and uh, in the evening. And it, as it got to the airport, it dropped off radar, which is not unusual, but it didn't land. They didn't see it. So the tower thought that maybe it had essentially, you know, landed and come off the runway. So they couldn't see it on the runway. So they, they scrambled all sorts of uh, emergency vehicles out there to look for where it could have gone off the runway. And a moment as they got out there, which is about 10 minutes later after all this started, apparently the jet was in the position it was right before it disappeared off radar and then came in for a smooth landing. And uh, he said the most interesting thing was, and he never was able, he, he was ex-military intelligence, ex-naval uh, army intelligence. He was never able to find out who, but apparently there were a bunch of guys, uh, government guys in suits, or they thought they were government guys. Nobody really knew. They um, had the plane, the jet go into a hangar. They offboarded everybody. They were all confused because when they were coming in, the people at the windows were seeing a nice clear landing zone. And then all of a sudden they saw all these fire trucks right below them, like they had popped into existence. Uh, according to Caden, the watches of everybody was 10 minutes behind. Wow. So for the people aboard the plane, no passage of time had changed. For the people on the ground, the, the flight had disappeared for 10 minutes and reappeared. So whether it went through something, hard to say, but there are a lot of stories like that um, out there. And it's hard to prove them um, other than going with witness, you know, essentially the witness testimony and everything else. 
but there are some instances where two atomic clocks get out of sync when they shouldn't have. And that shows some effect that should not have happened. We call, we call that a time slip also. That's amazing. That's so amazing. I didn't realize that's a, that, that was a real time slip. And then do you think the Mandela effect is a part like a, a, like a, a construct of our minds? Or do you think that that's like uh, something happening with timelines merging or something like that? Or what I, do you I don't think it has anything to do with timelines merging. Um, I think I do think it's an effect of our minds. Um, but the question then is what kind of effect? Is that a memory effect? Or is that, uh, you know, there's always, we talk about parallel universes all the time and, and other timelines. When we talk about predicting the future, for example, in parapsychology, precognition, most of us feel that we are looking at the most likely future, which is one of the reasons why predictions don't come true. In fact, weather prediction is looking at the most likely thing. They're not looking at what's definitely going to happen. Clearly, the weather guy is not right, except maybe five minutes before the prediction, you know, after the prediction is made. Yeah, so yeah. the closer in time you get, the less possibility there is. And the further out there is, the more potential or possibilities there are. And there may be something to that in the past as well, that there may be the, maybe the past is not set the way we think of it, um, or the things that were possible in the past just kind of hover around as, as ideas. So there could be an effect on our memory that way. There's the, I, I've had people suggest that that is because somehow psychically you're picking up on a parallel universe or a different timeline. It's not that you were in that timeline, it's that that timeline exists or that universe exists where that other thing happened. It just kind of cross that information crosses over. But it also could just be, you know, if you have enough people talking about an idea enough times, we're seeing this in politics, people start believing it. So and yeah. they, start, they start remembering the past differently, which is really interesting. That is, that is, because because it's like large groups of people remember it a different way than the way it actually was, right? Right, right. And the question that you have to kind of look back at, so was this spontaneous? Did those folks all spontaneously recall that event, in, you know, differently? Or was there information out there? Were there people saying, here's what's going on right now in the world, which is not true, and enough people are buying into it that it's becoming a reality for a group of people. Yeah. Wow. This, this stuff's all so amazing. Um, I, I want to thank you for coming on my show. It was really nice meeting you. And, and can you tell everybody where they can find you if they want to uh, take a course from you or buy your books or your website or all that stuff? So my books are all on Amazon. Uh, currently, the ones that are in print, I have um, a couple that are out of print that I hope to get back into print by the end of the summer along with a new book I'm writing on presenting the paranormal to the public, you know, for those folks who are in, you know, in the ghost hunting world. Um, so amazon.com, just my name is with one L, it's Lloyd Auerbach, so you can find me there. I'm on Facebook at lloyd.auerbach.author. That's the best place to find me. In fact, every other uh, week, uh, this is Saturday the 14th, Sunday the 15th of May, I'm actually doing my uh, bi-weekly Ask Professor Paranormal question and answer session, live paranormal session, which is um, at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific on my author page and also on the, the facebook.com slash the live paranormal. Uh, I'm on Twitter at prof paranormal as in professor paranormal or at Lloyd Auerbach. And as far as courses go, go to the Rhine Education Center. It's just Rhine, R-H-I-N-E-E-D-U.org or just go to Rhine, R-H-I-N-E.org. That's for the Rhine Research Center. Click on education, you can get to the courses, but please do consider supporting or joining the Rhine Center because there's 
hundreds, over a hundred hours, actually a couple hundred hours of, of uh, lectures and presentations and discussions in our media library there. And that's the longest running lab in the country, so. Wow, that's amazing. Um, well, th th thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And uh, I'll send you a link when I put it up. Thank you. Th thank you. It was very nice meeting you. I appreciate nice it. Nice to meet you too, Robert. Take care.